Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. This lesson was previously recorded by Michelle in front of a live audience. Paul's urgent letter to the Galatians was written to combat the false teaching that was beginning to take root amongst the churches in that area. In the letter, he emphasized that the God-given message he preached was one of grace. Unlike the message of the Judaizers who falsely taught that the law of Moses had to be observed in order to please God, Paul stressed that we're saved by faith and not by keeping the law, and that the Gentiles did not have to become Jewish before they could become followers of Jesus Christ. The early church leadership had confirmed this teaching to be true in Acts 15, but many of the Christ followers who were still unwaveringly Jewish continued to sow division and they began to travel from church to church trying to win people to their way of thinking. These Judaizers were, if you remember, a formidable group. In fact, Peter, because he was afraid of those who belonged to this circumcision group, stopped socializing with Gentiles when he was visiting Antioch, lest he offend them. Paul had challenged him on that, confirming that all people are, and I quote, justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And he also said that we are to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself up for us. Paul was adamant that we're saved by Christ's sacrifice on the cross alone, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Paul also confirmed that Christ's death made the Jews and the Gentiles one, because both of those groups equally needed his atoning sacrifice. It was vital that Paul's readers understand the seriousness of accepting false doctrine because at its core, all false teaching actually abandons Christ. And so Paul continues in Galatians 3 um, verse 1 with some very strong words indeed. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? You see, Paul was very frustrated that they'd been so easily led astray when the transformative power of Christ's death on the cross had been made so clear to them since they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. So Paul asks them a direct question. He says, had they received the Spirit by, in essence, obeying the Mosaic law or by believing in the message that Christ had paid for their sin? It should have been very obvious to them. It was in Christ alone that this new life was possible. 
Paul then challenges them to consider the foolishness of thinking that Christ's completed work was not enough to save them. In verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul wanted them to understand how ridiculous it was for them to go in this direction. They'd started with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so why abandon Christ? Why go back to the rules and rituals of the law instead of living in a real relationship with God? To help them realize that true believers had always followed God on the basis of faith, Paul reminds them about Abraham, who he says had believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Scripture makes it very clear. Abraham was made righteous in God's sight because he believed God would keep the promises he'd made. Promises that Abraham would have descendants far more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, and also that all nations on the earth would be blessed because of him. It is those descendants that Paul talks about next in verses 7 through 9. You see, the Jews claimed that they had a special relationship with God because they were the physical descendants of Abraham. But Paul wanted the Galatians and us to know a very important reality, and that is that the true descendants of Abraham that God was talking about were not those who were related to Abraham by flesh and blood. No, the true descendants of Abraham would be all those who, in the same way, believe that God would be faithful to save them. As far as God's promises to bless Abraham went, Gentiles had never been considered outsiders. They may have been excluded from the law of Moses, but they were not excluded from the promises of God. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul wanted the Galatians to think about what they were really doing if they relied on the law of Moses with all its rules and rituals. He says in verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Paul confirms the impossibility of being made right with God by what we do with the law, and also he explains what has been done about that curse, and more than that, why it has been done. Look at verse 11. 
Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says that the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promises of the Spirit. It is our faith in Christ that makes us righteous. The law of Moses declared that Anyone who hung on a pole was cursed by God. And yet, that is, if you remember, the very thing that happened to Jesus. When Christ hung upon the cross, he took the curse that we deserve on himself. He took all of our sin and the wrath of God's judgment so that we might be clothed in all of his righteousness. This is what we know as the great exchange. And Paul speaks about it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, God. in the next part of his letter, Paul uses a common example to make an important point about the relationship between faith and the law. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. We have to remember that Paul had been trained by the greatest rabbis of his day. And so as he speaks to the Galatians, who were struggling with false teaching on the importance of the law of Moses to Christ followers, he begins by speaking about something that was very familiar to Jews, though perhaps less so to us. He speaks to them about covenants. Covenants of that time were legal agreements between two parties. And just like legal agreements today, once signed and put into effect, they were binding and they could not be broken or changed in any way. No one could set them aside or add to them. That would be especially true in the covenant Paul is writing about, since this agreement was between Abraham and God himself. Now, if we are to understand what Paul means here, we really need to look a little more closely at the story of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was called by God to leave the land where he had grown up. He was to step out in faith, following God to a place he did not know, but where God promised to bless him. And the Lord also said that that land would be given to Abraham's offspring. 
Abraham followed in faith. The years passed, but still he and his wife remained childless. In Genesis 18, Abraham and Sarah were both old and past childbearing, but God never took back or changed his promise of a son through whom their offspring would be reckoned. His covenant with Abraham remained intact. As hard as that may have been for Abraham to believe, God tells us through Paul in Romans chapter 4 verses 19 to 22 that without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed that if God promised something, he would be faithful to do what he had said. And sure enough, in due time, a son called Isaac was born to the couple. You would have thought that that would be the end to the matter, and yet Abraham would be called on to act in faith once again. In Genesis 22, God called upon Abraham to offer his one and only son whom he loved, as a sacrifice, and Abraham was willing to do what he was asked. If you read the account in that chapter of Genesis, you'll learn that Abraham was finally prevented from killing his son at the last moment, because just as Abraham had previously said, God himself provided a sacrifice to be offered up in Isaac's place. But as you read the story, it becomes apparent through what Abraham said to his servants and Isaac, that Abraham never expected to lose his son that day. Why? Because he believed the covenant God had made with him, that he would have many descendants and that those descendants would come through Isaac. That's what he believed. That's what he held to. The writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, that by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. After this test of faith, God confirmed the covenant yet again with Abraham, saying in Genesis 22, verse 16 through 18, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. 
It's very important, though, that we understand that in the text of Genesis 22, verse 18, that word offspring or seed is not plural. It is singular. This is what Paul brings out here in Galatians 3.16, saying, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The one seed, the one person who would come from the line of Abraham to bring salvation and God's blessing to all nations was Christ. And God has done what he asked Abraham to do that day. God has offered his one and only son whom he loved as a sacrifice so that we might become his children. And Paul reminds his readers of God's unbreakable with covenant with Abraham and that it was in place 430 years before the law of Moses was even introduced. It was a covenant that depended on a promise given by grace alone, and it was a binding agreement. The law was introduced later through Moses, and it had no power to set aside or to change what God had already put into effect. So then with Paul, we have to ask, why then was the law given at all? Paul gives the answer in verse 19, which at first seems hard to understand, but it'll make sense as we break it down. He says, the law, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Now, let me say, if you don't understand that at first reading, take heart. This is one of the most difficult passages that Paul ever wrote. It will help if we remember that Paul is trying to prove the superiority of faith in Christ alone over anything that could be accomplished through observing the law. The first thing he says is that God gave the law, and I quote, because of transgressions. In other words, if there was no law, we would never know what, that we had been disobedient to God in the first place. If there was no law, we would not know how much we desperately need a saviour. And then he points out that the law was temporary in nature. It was given until such time as the seed to whom the promise referred had come. God's word had spoken about one who would come to set the captives free. And Paul wanted them to understand that the seed that God had spoken about was Christ himself. 
Paul then reminds them of how the law was given. He writes that according to the rabbis, the law was given through angels to a mediator, and that mediator, of course, was Moses to whom the law was given. But do you see how distant that makes God seem? In Abraham's case, God spoke directly to him, but when the law was given to the people, it did not come directly. It first came through angels and then through Moses to the people. Paul wanted them to see the idea of distance from God was there from the very beginning of the law itself. The law had a unique purpose, as we'll see in a minute. I also want you to see, though, that the law had been a conditional agreement. In other words, God says, if you do these things, then you will be blessed. But the covenant with Abraham, which preceded the law, had been given as an unconditional agreement in which God himself promised to do something that man was unable to do. And more than that, something that man had done nothing to deserve. And lastly, Paul points out that the covenant was for all people, as God promised to bless all nations through Abraham. Paul then asks in verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? And he answers, absolutely not. Through the law of Moses, no one was ever able to receive spiritual life. It did help us, though, to see sin for what it is. And if we understand then how badly we failed to please God, we understand our desperate need for a savior, for someone who will take the penalty that we deserve upon themselves so that we might go free through faith in his name. Paul wants them to understand that before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law and locked up until that, sorry, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. Now that this guardian has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul is trying here to help them see the part that the law of Moses had played in God's eternal plan. He likens the law to a guardian, and some translations will use the word tutor instead of guardian. The Greek word for guardian used in the text is paedagogos, and it was the name given to a special servant in a household who was entrusted with the children's care. This servant kept the children safe, they trained them in morality and the, the right way to live. And additionally, their job was to take the children to school each day and deliver them safely to the teacher. Now, Paul says that the law is like that for us. We're in the law's custody until the teacher, Christ, appeared. The rules and the rituals of the Mosaic law helped us to know what God desires and helped us to understand morality and the need for blood sacrifice. And it helped us to understand why we need a savior, but also what would be accomplished through faith in his blood. 
Verse 26 says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The law could never make us children of God. That was not its purpose. Only Christ can transform us from slaves to sons. When Paul says there, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, he's not actually talking about water baptism because water baptism is just an outward sign of an inward reality. Spiritually speaking, when we believed in Jesus Christ, we immersed ourselves into him and clothed ourselves with his righteousness. Water baptism is really a picture of that fact, that our old self has died with him and that we've been raised to new life in his goodness. It's interesting that in those days, Jewish men actually began their day by praying, thank you, God, that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Do you see here how Paul takes that very familiar prayer and he turns it on its head, saying that there is, no, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all united by the fact that without Christ's sacrifice, we are ruined. None are able to measure up to God's perfect standard, no matter who we are, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male or female, we all need Christ Jesus. If we belong to him, we are brought near to God our Father. We become his children through faith alone. And when we belong to Christ, we become one of Abraham's descendants. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. And we too will inherit the blessings he was promised by God. This is something we could never have done for ourselves. God has always intended that this relationship with him be possible through Christ alone. I saw this play out in my own life when I put my faith in Christ and became his follower. Before I understood about salvation that is freely offered because of the blood of Christ on the cross, there were times when I did try to read the Bible, but not knowing the truth about Jesus, I could not truly understand what the scriptures were saying. And the only thing that I was aware of was the wrath of God. I could feel his anger and his judgment as I read the pages. And so I'd very quickly close the book. When I finally heard and understood the gospel for the first time in a church service, I asked Christ to forgive my sin and to forgive me and cleanse me from all of that. And as I began to follow him and read his word, all of my life began to change. Suddenly, as God's child, I began to feel God's amazing love for me. 
I began to know his mercy and his grace that I'd done nothing to deserve. And I began to hear him speak through his word. Now, that didn't mean that I understood everything right away. That would take time and practice as I learned to listen to his voice over the years and as I began to obey him. But the sense of his love and commitment to me didn't waver. Once you know true freedom like that, you realize that your obedience to God's commands really is out of gratitude for what he's done. It's never out of a need to earn his favor. As his child, we know that we have his favor, and now we willingly work at the things that matter to our Father. And this is all because of Christ alone. Now, if you still feel that you're under God's wrath, Perhaps it's because you've never given your life to Christ and actually asked him to forgive you. And if that's the case, join me as I pray this at the end. Lord Jesus, for too long I've kept you out of my life. I know that I'm a sinner and that I cannot save myself. But by faith, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth Thank you for bearing my sins and dying on the cross to give me the gift of eternal life. Thank you for defeating death itself. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and lead me from this day onward. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.